It's Monday night at 10 p.m., and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. Uh, normally, we start with uh, some music and a joke, but uh, the comics community was impacted directly with the attacks on Friday night in Paris, and I just want to say our thoughts go out, particularly to the friends and family of Arian uh, Thieler, if I mispronounce the name, I apologize, who was an intern for Urban Comics, and uh, Urban Comics does a lot of the DC translations for, for France, is my understanding. And more importantly, I want to say uh, I want to, our thoughts and heart, uh, hearts and thoughts are uh, going out to all those impacted by terror attacks, not just in Paris, but Beirut and across the world as a whole. So not to sh- start the show on a downer, but felt like it was an important thing to say. Uh, but we've got a cool show coming up. Uh, tonight we have a first-time guest. Mr. David Walker, who is an amazing writer. I'm going to do an intro for him in a minute. But before we get to that, I want to say, hi, Alana. How you doing? What's up on hi. your end of things? Well, we've been really, really wanting to talk about this book for a long time. So I'm, I'm really glad that David Walker has come on to join us. And uh, let's, 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 uh, let's get him on. All right. So for those who don't know, and if you don't know, you're missing out on some amazing uh, comics, uh, He's been nominated for an Eisner Award for his work as an English-language writer on the critically acclaimed manga series Tokyo Tribes. He's author of the young adult series The Adventures of Darius Logan and co-writer of the Dark Horse comic series number 13. Uh, more recently, he has been writing Cyborg for DC Comics, and we praise the series uh, quite often on the show. Uh, the Kick-Ass Shaft uh, series from Dynamite, uh, The Army of Dr. Moreau from IDW Monkey Brain, and uh, the... I, is it supernal? Supernal's experiment? Supernal? <laughs> yeah, that's I the just, that's the title, which is always okay. a good title when people can't pronounce it, right? <laughs> I just looked at it. And I was like reading it before, and then I like read it again. I'm just like, am I? Did I just mistype that? All right, uh, from Canon Comics. So next year he will be writing Power Man and Iron Fist for Marvel. So he's got a lot Woo-hoo! on his plate. Uh, on top of that, he's a scholar expert on African American cinema. He's teach courses uh, for yeah, just. Tons of stuff. Uh, so we've got a lot to discuss. Uh, multi-talented guy. David, welcome to the show. It's someone that we've wanted to talk to you for quite a while. So thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's it's funny listening, hearing you read that bio because I'm like, oh, that's the, that's the bio that my ex-girlfriend wrote. And it's like, um, <laughs> it's just kind of funny because there's stuff in it like, like I never talk about Tokyo Tribes. Like that's such an old project and um, – so many people don't remember it that it's like, ah, it's like, how do you guys know about it? And then, boom, yeah, that's right. My ex girlfriend wrote my my bio. So I do. My well, it's research. not like we're sitting with her or anything and gossiping behind your back. I can assure no, you. I, I actually, I actually know where she is right now because she just sent me a text message like about 15 minutes before we went on. Um, but that's another story in and of itself. It's it's uh, it, it wasn't like a horrific. I'm coming to stab you text or anything it was we're still on good terms i love you sweetie <laughs> well, that's, that's the best uh, kind i i have i currently have at least one ex writing for our website so we we we, we, we are um all about being nice to people i guess that's what i would say <laughs> um, that's a sign of maturity i'm told <laughs> oh yeah yeah um, anyway um yeah that's really funny <laughs> So, so talking about comics, uh, so the first question <laughs> we we always ask is, you know, how did you get into comics, and bigger of how did you actually get into writing comics? 
Okay, well, I'll, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, first off, I'm, 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 I'm older than a lot of people realize. I um, grew up watching the Batman TV series with Adam West when it was first in syndication in the early 70s. So I was a huge fan of Batman, uh, and there was the um, there was an animated uh, Spider-Man show from the '60s, and, and some animated DC stuff. I, I was I was a kid who just loved all that sort of stuff. So that um, you know, my mom bought me my first comic book. I was probably like three or four years old. I couldn't even really read yet, but that was what started it. Um, and I was always fascinated with comic books and film and television and and knew from a pretty early age that I, I somehow wanted to be involved in one of these um one of these mediums, if not all of these mediums, to be quite honest. And, you know, in high school when you're going through I don't know if they still do it now, but you we would go through this thing called career development where you would decide what you wanted to be when you grow up. You know, and everyone wants to be a doctor, everyone wants to be a lawyer or whatever. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to do comics. I, at that point in my life, I really wanted to write and draw comics. And it, actually, I was more interested in drawing them than writing them. And so from that point, I was, I was always working on it, drawing comics, writing comics. And honestly, they were all terrible. Every single one of them was like, you know, um, I, 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 still have bits and pieces of some of them laying around that are I look at as inspiration of not, what not to do. And I went to the Kubert School after I graduated high school, um, was kicked out of there very quickly for being um, a rowdy uh, troublemaker. And and my my drawing ability just never took off. It was just, I, I was it was a combination of just, no, there's no combination. I was just really lazy. That's what it came down to. Um, and so I focused on writing because writing is so much easier than drawing. That's kind of the short version. And and then I got sidetracked with a career in journalism and, and all sorts of other things. And But always wanted to uh, always wanted to write comics. And, and as my midlife crisis started setting in, I realized, oh, I, I'd never done what I really wanted to do for a living. It's time to try doing it and and that's that's what led me to really seriously pursue comics gotcha uh impressive you know i i i was one of those people who like literally the only reason i picked up the cyborg comic was because you were writing it um and so i i would love to know like how did you uh, end up writing cyborg was it something that you had proposed to dc or was this something that they had come to you looking for they had come, DC had come looking to come to me probably almost a year beforehand. Uh, I was, you know, I was, I was sort of toiling away in the world of independent comics. Um, I, I lucked out with number 13 for Dark Horse, which was a project I did with my good friend Robert Love. And that got a little bit of attention. Uh, the Supernals Experiment, which is really in the independent comic that's only available digitally um, was was also really instrumental because Shauna Gore, who was the editor on that, was a former um, Dark Horse editor, a really good friend of mine, and somebody who had brought me in on this project. And and so 
someone from D.C. had had come to her and said, "Hey, do you know any writers out there that um, that are that are ready to make that transition, ready to work, you know, go from the independent world to to working for a big publisher?" And and Shauna had recommended me to, um, I believe it was Marie Javens. I, be, I believe I could be wrong at D.C. And at that point, Supernal's experiment was coming out, and Army of Doctor Moreau was coming out, and um, number 13 had already come out. And so those three projects in and of themselves were, uh, were were sort of calling cards within the industry, even though not a lot of people, not a lot of fans were reading these things. There was, a, there was a, some people out there that had seen it, for sure. Um, and there was a couple other people who, who I know were throwing my name out there. And I don't like to, I don't like the name drop because it sounds really, you know, sort of arrogant, but, like, I'm really good friends with Greg Rucka, I'm really good friends with Brian Bendis, and and both of them were throwing my name out at you know at Marvel and at DC and um, and so that was how my name was sort of coming to the attention of, of various editors at both publishers, and then um, when Shaft came out, which was uh, almost a, it was about a year ago, uh, a little bit before Shaft came out is when I started getting the, you know, sort of the inquiry emails from from different publishers. And then Shaft came out, and suddenly it was like, okay, so what are you doing? Let's let's, let's get some pitches from you. And, and DC had asked me to pitch uh, about three different projects, and, and I, I ended up only pitching two. I pitched Cyborg, and I pitched Green Arrow. And I thought for sure they were going to say no to, my, to my, my Cyborg and yes to my Green Arrow, which was... Brilliant, and hmm. but they said yes to Cyborg instead. So, and now I'm talking to you. Wow, I, I guess I should I should give some context around you saying that I only read Cyborg because you were writing it. But I, you know, I know you've been a you, you kind of wait on all this a bit. But for any of our listeners who don't like Cyborg, is a character who's been kind of historically problematic in the DC universe. Like you know, he was the first. African American superhero that DC had out and on the Teen Titans, but he was like really emasculated and dehumanized, and the whole thing creeped me out. And I had a hard time explaining what the problem was until I read Robert Jones Jr.'s essay about it. Uh, he goes by the name Son of Baldwin. The guy should Son find Baldwin, the essay. Yeah. yeah, and then I was like, yes, what I've been trying to explain, he just explained it. Go read that. And then when I heard that you were writing it and, you know, like your background looking at popular culture through the lens of African-American pop culture and like from a uh, racial justice perspective and as a black writer, I was like, oh, my God, I bet he's going to fix up Cyborg and make it actually like not be like have it actually be good. And then that's what happened. <laughs> and I was so excited. <laughs> um so, so it's interesting to know that Cyborg was like your idea that you pitched DC actually, and that's something that they came to you saying, like, who can save Cyborg from? His well, no, they, they they specifically asked me if I, they asked me if I was interested in Cyborg, and I and I said yes, but I but I I had the caveat. I said I really don't think you guys are going to want to do the things that I want to do, and they and and that of course was like the reverse psychology, I guess, because they were like, oh, what would you do with <laughs> Cyborg? And I was like, well, for starters. And you know they were like, really go on, tell me more. Um, and 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 you know part of the reason I was I was initially hesitant to pitch a cyborg book was for a lot of the reasons that like in that Son of Baldwin piece which I had read, 
and and I agreed with some of it, and I and I disagreed with other parts of it. Um, but that's sort of the beauty of 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 just human nature. We don't have to agree on everything. And yeah. yeah. But what really, for me, it was like, it wasn't even so much like, what do I do with this character? He's he's sort of this black character that's never been totally fully developed. It was it was the fact that so many people love this character, and I don't know how many of them realize how problematic he is. And and I think that that's that's sometimes a common thing within comics where it's like you know. Cyborg's always been the coolest member of the Teen Titans, um, but now suddenly he wasn't even a member of the Teen Titans. He's, you know, within the New 52, they retcon him, and he's a member of the Justice League, and and it was like, you know, if I point out some of these things, how upset how upset is DC going to be? How upset are the readers going to be? How upset? And then the Son of Baldwin piece came out and was like, oh, okay, wait a second. It's not just me who's noticing some of this stuff. And, and again, like I said, some of it I agreed with, some of it I disagreed with, but, but there was enough that I agreed with and, and then talking to other people that was like, okay, these issues are sort of, you know, they're they're real to a lot of people. And and part of the reason they're so real is, and, and I talk about this a lot, is because when we're dealing with representation, when you only have one or two characters of color, one or two black characters or one or two female characters or, or you know, one or two queer characters or one or two disabled characters, everything about them takes on much more meaning and much more significance because that's all we have to, to, to you know, grab onto and to identify with. And so to me it was like um, a tremendous challenge to, like, to not screw it up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to 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 really give the character a, a greater sense of humanity that I felt like, you know, that I was. It, there were so many times where it was like it was right there, it was like right within our grasp, but it was like, oh, he's, he doesn't quite have it yet, and oh, he didn't get it. And the reason he didn't get it, I don't think, you know, I'm not going to say it was, you know, some conspiracy by the man. I think it's just the fact that it's really difficult to develop a character when that character is not in a solo book. When they are, you know, a member of a team book, um, you just there's only so much room for them to grow. And and I think that that's a bigger part of the problem that a lot of people outside of the industry don't quite understand. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us were just talking about how, like, how is Cyborg, he's on the founding members of Justice League, and they haven't, took them four years, you know, to give him his own title. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and he was a founding member of the New Team Titans, and that was 35 years ago. And there's been a couple mini-series here, and there's been some, some stories that focus purely on Cyborg, but he's never had his own real world to to live and grow and breathe. And, and in all fairness, you know, Starfire, who was a member of the original Teen Titans back in 1980 as well, she just now got her own solo book. So it wasn't just, you know, just Cyborg. It was also, well, Starfire hasn't had that book. And Raven, so yeah. none, with the exception of Robin, none of them have. Um, but the fact that Cyborg was the only black character yeah. and, and one of the only black characters in the DC Universe 
I mean, there's others. Don't get me wrong. I know there's others, so no one needs to, like, <laughs> tweet at me later and go, you forgot about Black Lightning, and you forgot about... No, I, I didn't forget. I said one of the only, not the only. Um, yeah. But, but and he, and he, there's something that was just kind of cool about him. You know, he was... I, I Somebody was talking to me recently, and he said, you know, Cyborg always struck him as, like, the big brother of the Teen Titans. The, the you know, not necessarily the leader but the one that you could always count on in a jam. And uh, and and I think that, that that was why so many people have wanted to see a solo book with him for so mm. long. And um, and that's, but again, that's, it's, you can't, there, there's such a different dynamic between a solo book and a team book. In team books, I don't have much of a desire to write one. I, the, the Supernals was a teen book that I did, you know, for an independent publisher, and that was really hard. Um, you know, it's like, oh, you've got nine characters between your, your your protagonist and your antagonist. There's nine characters and only 22 pages per issue to give them room to grow. And suddenly it's like, it, it starts to feel pretty abbreviated. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can see how that would be the case. But I also just think it's so significant that, like, to finally have, you know, I think he's the only African-American-led book in D.C. right now, for example, right now. Oh, yeah, no, and, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I'm, uh, it, it, and that in and of itself is a weird thing, weird position for me to be in, personally, I, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, I think it sounds like, sort of some of the issues that I think people had thought about Cyborg are, are before have been the case, you know, or things that you had also been wondering as well and have questioned when you created the book. How has your opinion about the character and his role changed since you're writing him now and he's under your control? Cackle, cackle, maniacal laughter. <laughs> well, you know, the, the most important thing to me was um, – I wanted readers, first of all, I think there's something a lot of comic book readers have in common, no matter, it doesn't matter what color they are, it doesn't matter, um, you know, how they identify, any of those sort of things. I think one of the things that a lot of people have in common is is they have this, um, they come from a place of alienation. We all have at one point or another felt like, Maybe we didn't quite belong where we were and that people didn't understand us. And, and, and you can pick a reason. You can fill in the blank as to why. You know, oh, people don't understand me because I am, you know, African-American. Or people don't understand me because I um, have a weight problem. Or people don't understand me because I am whatever. You know, there's, there's all these identifiers. And those identifiers oftentimes tend to alienate us. And, and in my personal experience, there's been a lot of comic readers who have at some point or another felt that sense of alienation, and that's what they relate to in a lot of these characters, because a lot of these characters have a sense of alienation. So the key is is to develop that sense of alienation, but to really show the depth of humanity that's within that character. So with, with Cyborg, Part of his, a huge part of his alienation is the fact that he's he's from a purely numbers standpoint he's more machine than he is human 
right? So he doesn't fit in. No matter where he goes, he's always going to be the odd person out, and he looks like the odd person out. Um, but deep down inside, he's he's still a human being. There's still so much about him that's human, and and by bringing that out in the story, it's showing all the readers that it's like, yeah, this is this gives you something to identify with. That because we all have that thing that makes us feel like we don't belong, that people are picking on us about or, or using as a reason to exclude us. And, and, and that's what representation really is about. That's what diversity is really about. And, and so to me it was like, I want to write a book about a human being who everyone around him is like, is this guy really human? And even within his, himself there's this voice of doubt that everything that he does shows his humanity. If that makes sense, I hope that makes sense. Mhm, mhm. So speaking of uh, the <clears throat> seeing yourself in the characters and kind of identifying with it, uh, one thing that's actually struck me, I and mean, for those who don't know, and it's not really obvious looking, is I have a pretty you know huge disability that's uh, impacted my life a lot, and I found the first two issues really speaking to me as someone coming from that area of being you know poked and prodded and almost looked at as a science experiment by doctors because nothing ever made sense with me. Um, and it seemed like you, you were focusing a lot on that aspect of the character. It was something I'd never really thought about before is, you know, this is someone who has a disability just like me and has to rely on machines and technology to, you know, I'm doing air quotes, but live a normal life. Um, yeah. You know, it was a very, I think, very interesting and different take on the character for me. I mean, what got you to kind of go in that direction and like really kind of think about that aspect of the character? You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I, had, I got some heat from some people early on that um, had from a quote that was taken out of context that I had talked about, um, you know, Vic within the context of, of having a disability and part of this, part of the story I wanted to get into was how is he coping with it and, a couple of people went off on me online and, mm-hmm. and, and I was, you know, it's like, okay, you know, part of where it was coming from was, was the fact that, you know, uh, if you, if you, if you removed all the machinery from, from Vic, if you removed all of his cybernetics from Cyborg, he wouldn't be able to live. He's, he's dependent upon, um, this machinery to keep him alive. He has, you know, he has health problems that are that, that cannot be denied and and in the process of keeping him alive this technology also sort of makes him the alienated figure and you know i have i have people in my family with disabilities and that i often you know when you when you spend time with people who have disabilities a lot of times that's no longer what defines them once you get to know them because they're just your mother or they're just your brother. They're just the people that you love and it becomes part of your everyday existence. And that disability does not define them. It just happens to be part of who they are. And I don't, I, I've seen that some in comics, but not a lot in comics. And, and I just thought it would be, I don't want to say interesting to play with it because that sounds way too flippant. Um, but, you know, 
I, I've, I've done work in the past with um, with with kids with different developmental disabilities, and you know, I've had conversations with them talking about, oh, you know, you you hardly ever see characters in wheelchairs, or you hardly ever see characters with disabilities in comics, and it was like, oh, well, the conversations I was having with my friends who have whatever disabilities are the same conversations I'm having with my black friends, which are the same mm. conversations I'm having with women, which are the same conversations I'm having with, again, fill in the blank. There's there's so many different groups of people who, who feel like the comics aren't really speaking to them as much as they possibly could. And and when that happens, it be, after a while, I think it becomes a form of oppression. And I feel like they're... they're Every person has a right not only to see some sort of representation that they can um, identify with, but more importantly, more importantly, they they have it's a need, it's a fundamental need. I, I think it goes beyond being a right. I think it's a need. I think it's a need that helps us to develop a greater sense of understanding with ourselves, greater understanding of our self worth. And therefore, it allows us to then begin to change our narrative. And by change our narrative, I mean change how we see ourselves, how we move through the world. And and unfortunately, so much of pop culture does not give us that that sort of um, those sort of images. If that again, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm getting too much up on my soapbox here. No, this is it. We are we we are the show for you to do that because I'm like sitting here applauding to myself without trying to make it too loud in the phone's ear. This is we we welcome this, and I totally agree with you. Um, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I loved actually in issue two, uh, Cyborg lists all of the overly invasive questions people ask him about his body. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know that's what I was sounds, about to ask about too. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds so much like, you know, the kinds of questions, especially that transgendered people get from a nosy TV hosts who want to know about their bodies when they're on to talk about issues. Um, and the kinds of questions that, you know, like people going and touching your hair without asking you. And that kind of, kind of invasive microaggressions that people of color and, and people who are queer and, you know, deal with all the time. I thought that was such a wonderful representation of that. And, and it's and it's interesting because it's like you know that was my goal, but to go as as deep as you've gone with it was like, oh, I didn't you know I never quite thought about it that way you know it's like um, like I you know I never thought of it oh is is, is someone is it is a transgender person going to be able to relate to this? The fact that somebody yeah. can is is feeds into my like simply naive theory that we're all human beings, you know? Um, and, and that humanity is, unfortunately, it's, it's very easy to deny another their humanity, especially in this, this, the United States is a country that was built on this sort of ideological belief that someone must be denied their humanity so that we can feel better about ourselves, Right. And, you know, and I see it a lot. I, I, I was, years ago, I was a um, volunteer counselor at a camp for kids with um, with uh, various de- developmental disabilities. Most of the kids were in wheelchairs. And, 
and and this one kid was telling me this story about how at his high school, like someone knocked him out of his wheelchair and stole his wheelchair, right? And to me, it's like my first thought was, okay, if I like go to your high school and find these kids and beat the hell out of them, I'm going to go to jail <laughs> for this. But to me, it's like who would ever do that? Who would ever, you know? First off, not not who would knock some kid out of his wheelchair, but just who would just do something that bad to another human being? And then there, then the answer is, well, someone who is actively trying to dehumanize someone else to feel better about themselves. And, and like, you know, part of our goal as writers and as artists and as creatives and as human beings is not only to reassert our own humanity, but it's to show the people who are oppressing us and victimizing us and, and, and trying to take away our humanity that in in order for them to take away our humanity or try to take it away, they have to give it up themselves. They have to give up some of that some of what they have. And um yeah, it's just it's very interesting to me because, you know, I hear people tell me stories of the things that have happened to them and part of me is just shocked and flabbergasted because it's like who could ever do something like that to another person? Like, and then I'm like, oh, but like, crap like this happened to me when I was a kid, you know. Um, and and so it's just really interesting, and 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 it makes me realize the importance of what comics and film and and these these seemingly frivolous bits of entertainment actually are very important, and and and. We should never underestimate the importance of, of of how they help us move through our day-to-day lives. Well, actually, I, the thing that, you know, I was actually wanted to bring up that scene, too. I was just kind of looking at it as, as Alana was talking about it. And the thing that amazes me in that, you know, Alana and I have talked about it, is that she's, you know, she talked about it, about, you know, how uh, a trans person might relate to it or a gay person might relate to it or other people relate to it. When I was reading it, I, I was reading it from my disability section of it, and I was thinking about how, you know, doctors have looked at me uh, as a, you know, statistics and charts and not as a person. Um, so I think it, it says something to the writing that both of us, coming from our different perspectives, you know, walked away with very much a similar message. Um, which just to me is, is even more impressive about the writing um, to, you know, hear other folks and what they've taken away from it. Well, yeah, thank you. You know, it's, it's I, and I appreciate that. That means a lot to me because it's, again, you know, there's this, um, there's a scene that is in issue five, which is due out pretty soon, which um, without, I, I won't, get too into it, but as I was writing it, I was just writing it to try to have a bit of humor in it. I felt like, yeah, the scene needs some humor. And I was done with it, and then I looked it over, fine, okay, and then the art came, and I had to proofread the lettering, and I'm reading it, and I was like, oh my God, I was saying so much more with this scene that I I thought, (laughs) that I really thought, you know. Um, I don't, I tend not to be the sort of person who's like, trying to put the message in right away. But the message is, is part of me. You know, this, this again, I, I'm always talking about the reclamation of humanity, assertion of humanity, and, and and that's so deeply ingrained in who I am that that I guess it, it just sort of comes through even if I'm not trying 
to make it come through. It's just there, you know. Um, but it, it means a lot to me, you know, to hear what both of you are saying because it's like, because again, like we are all comrades in the, you know, the the um, the battle against oppression. You know, we we in our own way we come from um, places in which we've been oppressed or we've been marginalized or we've, or we've been underrepresented. And, like, there's no reason for that. There's absolutely no reason for that, you know. I mean, just in the context and in, in how we're having this conversation right now, you know, we're just disembodied voices. You know, I, I don't know what you look like or I don't know what your physical condition is like or I don't know how much you weigh or I don't know what color hair you have or, or any of these things. And it's like, all you are is another human being. And no matter how many descriptors may, how many adjectives we can place in front of that human being, you're still a human being. We, we, can, we can strip away all those adjectives, all the descriptors, all the identifiers, and at the end of the day, that's what we all are, human beings. And, and anything more than that is, can be a bonus, depending on how we choose to look at it, or can be a detriment depending on how other people look at it. But but I really don't think there are any detriments other than how other than what those that are projected upon us. Hmm. Um and it's and it's up to us to sort of um you know, like in, in a Christmas carol when, when Marley goes to see Scrooge and he says, I wear the chain that I forged in life Well we all wear a chain that, that is forged for us, but it's 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 placed on us, and it's that chain is is again the change of of, um, of oppression and and not even necessarily lack of representation, but how we are represented. Um, because it's not like there's there's a ton of black folks in popular culture and mass media, but you know it's like well do I want them speaking for me? You know, so it's well, that, again that's, that's a really good question. I mean. Because to me, like, you know, I had a certain critique and concern about the character Cyborg, but I'm a white person, and I was not able to really quite put my finger on it or express it well until I saw, you know, a black writer explain it, and then I was like, yes, that, that explains the problem. And I would not have had faith, frankly, like, even if it was a fellow, like, you know, progressive person or whatever who was a white person writing the comic, like, I would not have had faith that a white person would have written this comic okay. I just don't think that I would have trusted that. Uh, maybe you never know. Once in a while, we we once in a while we get surprised, um, and 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 you know, and and sometimes it's just like these little itty bitty pieces. I mean, I'm I'm working on the sequel to Shaft right now. Can't wait, Shaft Can't. comic. And and I'm telling you right now, it is going to piss off so many people because there's um, and it's really interesting. And I've had some conversations with my, some of my friends about it. In the original Shaft novels that were written by Ernest Tidyman, they are incredibly homophobic. I mean, they're so homophobic that I read them now, and I'm like, oh, whoa, oh, my God, you know. And I was like, well, I don't want to undo anything that Tidyman did, and and at the same time, I don't want to condemn him or the character, but I want to find a way to address that in some capacity, and I want to find a way to address it in order in a way that feels natural and organic to the character and not heavy-handed. 
And so there are some moments in this new Shaft miniseries that I'm writing that that are, in fact, homophobic moments. And part of what we're going to see throughout the story is him moving away from some of his homophobic thinking. Not 100% away. It's not like he's next thing you know he's going to be um, marching, you know, down on Christopher Street and, you know, hanging out at the Stonewall or something like that in 1971 New York, but definitely a change in him. Mm-hmm. And and I was talking to some friends of mine about it and showing them, you know, the script to get some feedback, and they were like, you're going to get, people are going to beat the hell out of you for this, you know? And I was like, that's all right, you know? I, I, I don't mind if that happens because I think that there's, I have faith that there will be some people who will see it and read it and understand what I'm doing. And and I think we, we're living in an overly sensitive age right now where, you know, you have a character in, in your story who's racist. That doesn't mean that the creator is of the story is racist. It means they are trying to show racism. They are trying to mm-hmm. show homophobia. They're trying to show sexism. And and show it in a way that it exists in reality, which is like we all know is really ugly sometimes. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it. And I'm, I'm like living in fear of it, but I'm also like I'm a writer. So, you know, the, the only thing that is worse than the fear of people screaming at me for something that um, may rub them the wrong way is if they ignore me. So I'd rather <laughs> have people hate me than, you know, totally ignore me. Well, I mean, having seen both sides of this, I think the question is, you know, if a writer is doing a good job of communicating, then it's clear, like, what is coming from the text versus what is, you know, in an authorial voice. Uh, And if the point of the story is to show this character, like, learning and changing, that's completely different from just existing to, like, revel in, you know, and enjoy, like, the cute retroness of certain stereotypes, you know? Yeah, exactly. Those are... But those are different. Those are different things. And if you're doing your job, like we'll, we will be able to tell which is which. Um, so I, I, I hope, and I think some people will, and other people won't. And and you just sort of deal with it on a case by case scenario. And what I've learned to do is, um, I don't, I don't engage with the, the negative critics on Twitter. Um, I engage with the people who who have the um who who aren't afraid to walk up to me in person or maybe they send me, you know, a private message and ask why did you do this? Uh then then I'll then I get into it and 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 it's always about, you know, if there can if you can have a, a healthy, respectful um exchange and 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 not get into name calling or, or fighting, then I, I think a lot of positives can come out of that. And, and there's some people who've been, you know, very critical of me in the past that are now friends of mine. And, and you know, they, you know, even with Cyborg, I've had a couple friends go, you know, who, who don't like what I'm doing with the book. And they're like, well, I feel really bad because you're my friend and I don't like it. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, it's okay to have your opinion. The, the key is to separate your opinion of my work from your opinion of me. You know, it's it's the same with separating your opinion of 
you know, is Star Trek better than Star Wars and not using that as, like, a reason to hate another person. And for the record, well, Star Trek is better than Star Wars. That's beside <laughs> the point. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that is true. <laughs> that is true. But, like, I think some of the different. I mean, but there's a difference between, like, having an opinion around, like, a fandom, like, and what, what is better quality, but when it comes to representation and how you are represented in art when you yourself are, like, you know, a marginalized group of people, like, that's, I mean, that's at a different level of weight. Because, like you were saying, and I think your point about, like, having this human need to have your story, to have, to have, to have your stories, like, be there and have you be included in them, I think, you know, part of that is to not feel like you're dehumanized. Yes, yes. And it's, you know, and it's interesting, too, because I think there's also the need to, uh, I, I went and saw this movie the other night, uh, a movie from the 60s called The Wild Bunch, which is a Western, Sam Peck and mm-hmm. classic yep. Western, which is an incredibly sexist, incredibly misogynistic, very violent film. And it's like, and I see all of these things now. I didn't see them all the first time I saw the movie when I was like probably 18 or 19 years old. And I see them, you know, I, I see the movie as having all of these problems. And it's like, okay, it has these problems. And I have gotten to the point where I don't feel guilty about liking that movie anymore. I used to feel like that was one of many movies where it's like, I can't, I can't really like this because it's, sexist and it's misogynistic and it's like well I don't like sexism I don't like misogyny um, this movie is what it is and I'm going to watch it and there's certain people I'm not going to watch it with and there's certain aspects of the movie that I am not going to take and use as I engage in my day to day life but when you know William Holman and Ernest Borgnine are killing everybody at the end hey I'm having a good time you know <laughs> um, and it's and it's really interesting because some people can't, you know, and it's it's like if you were to pick apart every single film and dismiss every single film for, for whatever problematic thing it has, there's no movies to watch. There's no probably no books to read, no comics to read, there's no because there's something wrong with everything, because there's because nothing is perfect. Um, and I and I think that that's really interesting. That you know, it's a, I, I have a friend who's like doesn't watch that many movies because like oh well I heard that it has this sort of problem you know I I heard it was sexist well yeah maybe it is but first off you know who who's who are you going by what's your information and you know are you uh, is that really going to stop you from at least being entertained? I think that the, the, these are we give so much importance to our entertainment, and yeah, there's there's need for change. We have to do it. We have to change how people are represented and and, and the thought processes. But at the same time, sometimes you just want to be entertained. Sometimes I just want to put in a good kung fu movie and watch a good kung fu movie, and, you know, and those are problematic in and of themselves. Everything is problematic. Mm-hmm. There, There is no such thing as perfection. God knows I'm trying to achieve it, and it's it's, <laughs> it's impossible. Well, I mean, I you know, like, I listen to heavy metal, like, a lot. So I, yep. 
am completely immersed in like highly problematic whatever all the time. But I also respect that like some people don't have that comfort level, and if people are you know, if 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 somebody honestly feels like they can't watch something, like then I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong for feeling that way because, like for whatever reason, I'm insulated enough or disassociated enough from, like, you know, taking what messed up things people say in music that I listen to, um, and and thinking that they are a reflection of me in some way. It, it doesn't feel that way to me at this point. But I also completely get why people would choose to not expose themselves to that in a kind of a regular way. And I think it's, it's you know, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't blame your friend if she doesn't want to see anything. Like, I, I want to I watch a lot of movies, but I can't blame her for not wanting yeah, to. I don't, I don't blame people for that. It's, it's the, the problem for me is always when they blame me. Because oh, you're right, like, I, I love heavy metal too, right? You know, I mean, I, I the high school that I went to was um, – you know, predominantly, you know, it was a good mix of, you know, black and white. It's the the 80s. It was the dawn of, me- you know, that, that era mm-hmm. of metal, you know, uh, Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast and Judas Priest. And and um, and to me, between that and, and hip-hop and, and punk rock, all of which were still relatively new at that time, or at least new to me, was so much more interesting than Michael Jackson, right? So... Mm-hmm. This is the stuff that I gravitated towards, and I and like when I'm driving in my car, I still listen to a lot of metal. You know, I have like a a, a metal mix file on my MP3 player, and I'm listening to it. And every now and then, I'm like, "Wow, this stuff is just um, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> this music is so asinine." And it's and and part of it's offensive, and but it's like, you know what? When I'm in the car alone. I, I can listen to it. Now, I've got some friends. I would never play it for them yeah. or, or, you know, subject them to it. At the same time, you know, if if I had a friend who said to me, you should never listen to this because blah, 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 you know, my response is like, yeah, you know, I'm intelligent enough to know that it has this, has these some of these problems, but, you know, I still love, you know, anthrax. I still love... Mm-hmm. You know Metallica. I still love ACDC. I still love Judas Priest. You know, and and um, and I'm going to listen to it. I still love Rick James too. He's my favorite funk <laughs> musician of all time. You know, and and his music. Yeah. There's a ton of problems with it. You know, and him as a person, he had problems yeah. too. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's all very interesting. We're all complex. That's yes. it. And 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 it's that complexity of how of how my complexity interacts with your complexity and um sometimes makes for very interesting discourse. Oh, I since we just hit on metal real quickly, I want to bring this to something um from a far earlier era in popular culture, which is uh Invisible Man by Ralph Allison. Yes. I feel like it's a text that you're referencing a lot in at least in the early the first couple issues of this comic, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it come a little bit more. Um, I just would love to hear you talk a little bit, a little bit about, like, you know, like Ralph Ellison's work, or about the Invisible Man in specific, and and how that or other, I guess, civil rights era writing is influencing what you're doing in the book. You know, it's 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 so funny because it's one of those things where I, I there is a reference to Invisible Man, a reference to Ellison. 
which is, again, as I was writing it, I didn't realize that's what I was writing. I was, oh, wow. There's a, there's a <laughs> bit where Cyborg talks about how he hates being invisible and da-da-da-da-da. And, I, and I, as I was writing it, I wasn't writing it in the H.G. Wells context of an invisible man. I was definitely writing it within the Ellison, um, yeah. that, that, that Ellison construct, but it was, it was so unconscious, and it came out, and I wrote it, and, and it's, you know, it's interesting because I was asked to remove that reference from the script, and they were like, oh, that's kind of a, you know, a cliché. And it wasn't until editorial said, well, that's kind of a cliche that I was like, well, there's nothing cliche about Ellison, you know? And then I was like, oh, wait a sec. Whenever I reference the Invisible Man, that's just it. It's just a gimme. This is what I'm talking about. You thought I was talking about H.G. Wells. You thought I was talking about the guy with his head wrapped in bandages and, you know, um, the guy that Abbott and Costello met in the the worst of the Abbott and Costello movies. and so for me, it's 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 really interesting because there's so much of that stuff. Um, you know, Ellison Baldwin even more so, James Baldwin, um, elements of Langston Hughes, and and so many of of these other writers and poets that just sort of permeate my life and my mind and my thinking. That I'll drop something in without necessarily really thinking too much about it, but that, that concept of being, you know, um, I read Invisible Man when I was 17 or 18, I think, and it really, it had as, as, as strong an impact as anything it ever has, um, and it, it felt like a gut punch, and and then shortly after that, I there was a short story by Baldwin that I read called Sonny's Blues, which had even more of an impact on me. Um, and I think part of it is might be the eras in which they were written. You know, uh, Invisible Man was written before my time, whereas Sunny's Blues was written right around the time I was born, and, it, it, and it's reflective of the early part of my childhood. And, and it seems like everything that I do, my, my whole life, is living Sunny's Blues. Um, mm. Sort of this... this um, which I don't know if either of you have read the story or not. Sonny's Blues, no, I'm not familiar. Actually, my husband was just telling me he read it earlier when we were talking about this, but I have not read it. Okay. It's a no, short story. I was story actually about the Wikipedia. Wiki it. Like, wiki. That is kind of crazy, though, because he was just talking about that. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. It's, it's just, um, it's such a profound story to me because it's about a school teacher who and his brother, Sonny, and Sonny is a ex-junkie and a musician, and is, is, you know, there's all the things that the brother isn't, the brother is the narrator of the story, and, and it's all about sort of what life does to, to black men in America, and, and how some people survive it, and other people don't, and how some people, um, get beat up, but they come out the other side, and, and there's this, um, there's just this this one sentence in the very beginning of the story about where the narrator is talking about he's looking at a group of young black men and he sees in he sees in them what he saw in in himself and his friends and and um how they were living I always mess it up but the, the gist is 
they they are living their lives now as we were living our lives then, banging our heads against the ceiling of opportunity. And like I remember reading that I was like seventeen, eighteen years old, and I was like, "This is me. This is what he's you know." It's just as I was starting mm. to realize, that this is what America is going to do to me. It's always going to have the ceiling of opportunity, and it's like and like I will break my head open trying to break through it before I let it make me become stooped over. You know, I will I'm gonna do my best to stand upright. And then as I grew older and, and you know, started finding my creative voice, it's like that's what I have to help other people do. And it's it's you know, it's not literally stand upright because there's some people who can't stand upright. Um but it's that that metaphorical, figurative way that it's like that it gives us again the right to be a human being, and 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 to reclaim our humanity and to and to let people know that no matter how much someone tries to take it away from us, they can't. They can convince us that we want to give it up, but but they can't take it away from us. Hmm. Speaking of people and places that people who are in power have tried to take things away from, one of the things that I was really struck rereading in preparation for today's show was the significance of the story of Cyborg being set in Detroit. Now, Detroit is a location in the D.C. universe. You know, the D.C. universe make-believe cities like Gotham and Metropolis. But Detroit has been a real thing in the D.C. universe since the Bronze Age, really. Um, and yeah. Cyborg is certainly a character who's closely identified with Detroit. And, you know, with the water shutoffs that are happening in Detroit and so much of the, like, the, the, the democratic power of the people of the city of Detroit being taken away from them by the state managers who were, by the city manager who was appointed, I, I'm just wondering, like, what is the significance of continuing, you know, to have the story be in Detroit, because I don't think, like, you probably didn't have to have it there, but it seems like a deliberate choice. I would love to hear a bit more about that. You know, it's, that's, it's all, that's also really interesting because, um, you know, especially within the New 52, it was, it was established that, that this particular branch of Star Labs that, that um, Vic Stone's father, Silas, is working out of is in Detroit. That cyborg's base of operations is Detroit. And so it was it was sort of a no brainer like well we're going to set it there um but then for me it, be- it it became this thing of like well you know are we going to be able to work in some of the, the the issues that that this city that this community is facing i mean you know i i haven't been to detroit in years the last time i was there which was like the late 90s early 2000s and i was like you know Oh my God! This is the city. Just looks like it's you know it it's benign neglect, but it's gone beyond benign. It's like malignant neglect that goes on in the city, and that was fifteen or more years ago. It's, I I know it's only gotten worse, um, and and it's you know for me it's like yeah the Detroit that is in Cyborg is not real Detroit because it is a comic book and and comic books aren't real, but how do we address some of this sort of stuff? And and this is some of this stuff is what I'm trying to get into with, the, the, especially with the second story arc that we're developing right now. Um, I sometimes I think that I'm probably a little bit too political for everybody, and they're like, oh, let's not get so deep. Hell no. 
Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I definitely think that there's issues that are near and dear to people. And I think it was in the, the second issue of Cyborg, there's a, um, there's just like one panel where there's a, there's a famous statue in Detroit, which is, uh, the Joe Lewis monument, which is, Mm -hmm. um, the giant fish. And, and I, and I sent a, email to, or in the script, I, I said, uh, this scene needs to happen in front of one of two places. It either needs to happen in front of um, the Motown Museum, uh, or it needs to happen in front of the Joe Lewis Monument, whichever you want to draw. And with my fingers crossed that Ivan would want to draw the Joe Lewis Monument, I was like, I want everybody to know that you know, if there's nothing else that lets people really reminds people that this is Detroit, there's got to be at least one panel that that people from Detroit will see it and go, "This is where I live." And and of course, Ivan chose the monument, which in and of itself is is so iconic and 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 has such a different meaning, even to people who don't know what it is. I I, I saw a review where someone was talking about oh, and it's in front of this cool black power, you know, statue. And I was like, well, yeah, okay, if that's how you want to perceive it. But no, it's really just a monument to Joe Lewis, who is a boxer, and you're probably too young to know this. So, um, Joe Lewis is kind of a black power statue, I mean, right? Like that is actually not an inaccurate description, even if they don't know their history. It's very true, you know. So that in and of itself, and that's that's that's, peeling back another layer and looking at, you know, who Joe Lewis was and what he represented in his time in in history. And so those are the little things that I feel like sometimes those are, are, are as significant as anything else. Um, and, and you give readers just a little bit of something. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm formulating this theory that there's a certain number of readers out there such as yourselves that really are looking for something and, and want it there. And then I think there's a whole bunch that just, just want to read comics, you know, and, and they get freaked out if they think they're being preached to in some capacity. And so it's like trying to walk this fine line between the two of like making sure that there's, that there's just enough that, that really engaged analytical critical readers are getting something and and getting some level of nourishment, and not some and and not so much that other readers are like, you know, ew, this tastes yucky. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. too many vegetables in this dish. You know. Well, I mean, that's certainly our audience, though, the people who, who are looking for, you know, that. And that's, I think, why people have really got on to this particular book, because there are, you know, there's other sci-fi books out there, but I don't think any of them are tackling race in the same way this book is. Uh, although I would also add, I have gotten a question from one of our listeners who wanted to know, um, on a slightly different angle, uh, if you thought that uh, Beast, uh, Beast La- uh, Changeling or Beast Boy might be making an appearance in Cyborg since they have had such a close relationship. Um, he was wondering if it would be a romantic or non-romantic connection. Uh, but, but uh, you know, reflecting the needs of various readerships, I wanted to put that question to you. Well, here's, here's the answer as best as I can, I can give it. It's something that I want to see. I definitely would like to see it at some point during the, the run. 
during my run in Cyborg is I, I would love to see um, Cyborg reunited with, with Beast Boy. The, the the situation is, the reality is, is that within the New 52, they've never met. And so right. all of the history that exists between the two of them in in um, years past, from all the iterations of the new Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go, all these other things, none of that's actually there anymore to draw on. So, and we've, I've been having this conversation with editorial in DC, which is, you know, I want to bring Beast Boy into the book in some capacity, have him be a guest star. And the thing that they keep saying to me is, well, you know, they don't know each other. And I'm like, yeah, I know they don't know each other. In this reality, in the New 52, they don't have the history. Wouldn't it be fun to introduce them, to have, have this introduction be uh, in this book? And, and so we're, you know, we're talking about it, and, and if, when and if it happens, we'll see. Um, and I think it would also just be, uh, it, to me, the challenge is how do you... Um, write a story that introduces two characters that the readers know have known each other for 35 years, but within this new publishing initiative, they've never actually met yet. Um, yeah. And and I think that, it, it, to me as a writer, it's a great challenge. Um, you know, the, the thing with, with both DC and Marvel is, you know, you're constantly sending emails to your editors going, hey, these are the characters that I want to use. Can we use them? You know, thinking no one's ever going to use these characters. Uh, you know, obviously with Beast Boy, that's that's a, that's a much bigger character. Um, but there's, I sent a list of like five characters to DC that I wanted to use for this upcoming story arc. Like, there's no way they can say no to them. But then it's like, <laughs> what happens if they say no? You know, I mean... You, you just it, it's um it's it's an interesting dynamic and, and there's all these interesting you know I don't know how everything operates editorially but but that is a relationship that I would love to play with um, because I would I know that I could play with it in a context in a way that it's never been played with before and mm-hmm. I've had a couple of people say oh I think that it should there should be romance between them and. I'm like, hey, you know, I don't know. I never thought about it that way. I'm I'm too busy trying to figure out how to make some romance between, you know, Sarah Charles and and, and yeah. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. It's it's. Um, I think that one of the things a lot of readers don't always think about is how much, um, you know there's all sorts of weird editorial factors that go into the characters that you get to use and the characters you don't get to use. And, and, um, and so for me, it's like, Oh, there's a million things I want to do, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get to do them. (laughs) You know, uh, that's, that's what you'll have to wait for my, my creator owned projects for. Yeah. 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 Quick question on that though. Cause you kind of brought it up that a lot of people, wanted to see Beast Boy and, and Vic have some sort of romantic relationship. Like, how much um, history do you have, actually, with Cyborg beforehand? And were you watching, like, the Young Justice cartoons and all that? Because I think a lot of that... I, I don't know the history. I want to please correct me. A lot of that came out of the Young Justice, or was it the comics, where people were kind of reading into that? I, I'm, I actually I'm, don't know. 
I don't know either. I mean, I was reading <laughs> New Teen Titans in the 80s when I was a kid, and and if there was any sort of subtext like that there, I didn't I didn't pick up on it. Um, if it was young, it, it, you know, does it exist in Teen Titans Go? I don't know. Is it in Young Justice? I don't know. Um, I, I think that there's. I think that it's interesting because there's a lot of it is what readers want to see because a lot of the readers who want to see it is because it isn't, it's something they haven't seen. And, and there's something about the personality of the characters. You know, it's, it's when I was younger, there was a lot of fan fiction that was uh star Trek fan fiction. And it's, um, and it was always these romantic relationships between Kirk and Spock. Right. And, and it's, I think that, a lot of people project whatever it is that they want to see onto these characters that they're familiar with. So if it's not Kirk and Spock, if it's not Cyborg and Beast Boy, then it's, you know, Harry Potter and, and Ron Weasley or something like that. Although I think anybody in their right mind would go after Neville Longbottom. That's the guy, you know. <laughs> that's, that's He's the dreamiest of, of all of them at Hogwarts. I, I don't know how any anyone could resist him, but that's just me. So, um, and, and I think that that's just what it is. It's like, you know, when, uh, you know, for me, there's, you know, when I would imagine like romantic encounters, uh, in comics, it was always the characters, you know, it was that I would want to see. And it was always, you know, it was always someone. And, and I can't remember her name. Was it, uh, Tigra, Tigra from the Avengers, Uh the Tiger Mm -hmm. lady, you know, it was like I wanted everyone to date her because, like, to me there was something about a tiger woman that, you know, the 12-year-old in me was like, wow, that's hot, you know. Um, I don't know how I'd feel if I actually met a woman who was part tiger in real life at this point in my life. But, you know, you never know. I'd like to think I'd be open-minded to it. So. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, it was something that people have been asking, though. I mean, I think it points to that people like enjoying things on more than one level, you know? Yes. It might be a, a political level, an emotional level, an id level. I, I, you know, I think that a lot of comics are good at scratching multiple levels of that, I suppose. Yes, um, yes. I want to make sure, actually, before we lose you, I, you know, I'm super excited to hear about you doing the um, Iron Fist Luke Cage comic. I love, love Luke Cage. I suspect that I would also be really interested in Iron Fist. Um, and uh, having you do it with Sanford Green sounds like a great, like, power pair. Um, I don't know yeah. to what, you, what you're allowed to say about the upcoming series. We definitely would love to have the both of you on when you're able to talk about it. But if you have any anything you can say about that in advance, um, we would love to Yeah, you know, it. it's uh, I don't know what I can say. We'll find out if I get yelled at tomorrow. Um but, uh, no, it's just great. You know, uh, Sanford was just, I just saw some of the uh, first pages are, are starting to come in, and they look amazing. Obviously, some of his character designs are out there. It's amazing. Um, I, I, what I, the book itself is about friendship, and it's about relationships. Um, because relationships manifest themselves in so many different ways. And uh, but the guiding thing about this book is friendship and, and how friendship um, impacts us 
on on our in our day to day lives and 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 sometimes we have these unlikely friendships and and I always you know there's moments where I'm with some of my friends and it's like wow how did this happen how did I become friends with you you know how how did this um just a seemingly random encounter with a stranger then grow into something, you know, like uh, in the case of one of my best friends who just called me today, you know, we've been friends for 30, uh, what was it, 37 years or something like that. You know, we met when we were in fifth grade. And, uh, and, and it was just one of those things. And then here we are a lifetime later and we're still friends. And that, that to me is what the book is about. And it's, um, hmm. You know, anyone who who read the the Power Man and Iron Fist book from the it started in the late seventies through the early eighties, um, you know, we're trying to get some of that sense of fun, and and I think that um, whatever sort of political statements that I've made in some of my other work, um, I don't think it's going to be as obvious in this. It's going to it's going to manifest itself in different ways. Um, but like just as an example, when the designs for Black Mariah came out, who's going to be one of the characters in the book, it's like this is a Black Mariah like, like we've never seen her before, and it's like taking a character that was incredibly problematic in her existence before, and and changing her, but also honoring some of that the some of the things that could have remained problematic. Um, and going, you know what? Uh, it's okay to have a, a, a full-figured woman who is can be completely badass, and yeah. and and that, and she's not ashamed of the fact that she's full-figured. She's not, you know. Um, and if anybody says something to her about it, they're likely to get, you know, their ass kicked. So, um, and that was it, it's stuff like that. I, I though. Sometimes it's, it's it's a subtle change, and I, and I remember um, this was just like a week or two ago when the, when those d- designs got dropped, and like within two minutes there was someone on Twitter who was like, "Finally, there's a character I can cosplay," and and yeah. I was like, "There you go, <laughs> you know, that's that. This is what it's all about. That in and of itself becomes a political statement. It's it's that you know." There's something in this character that that I that I can um, that I can pretend and I can take on certain aspects of without shame and 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 feel a sense of empowerment and so that that's pretty cool to me. Yeah, looking at those designs, I I'm really impressed with them and I'm, I think it's great. Like we've lamented the loss in DC of having a large, older black Amanda Waller and the smaller. The younger version of Amanda Waller we have is great, but it's not the same Amanda Waller. It's great to see Black Mariah, like them, you know, treating her like a real person and like a, you know, like a large black woman who's like, you know, not a joke. Like she is a real character and she has a, like, I love it. I love the design he does for her. That's just so cool. Yeah, no, we were, when I, you know, I asked permission to use her, got the permission, and then I said, um, okay. She's still going to be black, <laughs> like, yeah. And then I said, and you know, um, I'd prefer if we didn't have to put her on, you know, a diet, so to speak. And they were like, no, no, no. And I was like, okay, but at 
the same time, we're not going to have her walking around in a moo-moo. So, yeah. um, and, and Sanford and I had, had a conversation about it, and he was, him and I were on the same page, and I was like, you know, as someone who was raised, you know, by quite a few black women, and quite a few of them were, were full-figured, um, you know, or actually, as they would say, big-boned, um, you know, it was like, I'm going to honor these women as best I can within the context of a comic book. And and the best way I can do that is to have her be fabulous and spectacular and sort of uh, and, and proud of, of 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 what she has to offer the world. And what she has to offer the world is that, you know, she's going to be a pretty badass criminal. Yeah. Um, I, I just love these designs. I'm so excited for this comic. Um, one other thought I had is that, you know, you're writing Cyborg right now for DC, and there's a Cyborg movie coming out uh, in a number yep. of years. And, you know, are there specific pressures or considerations that you have to address as the writer of the comic now, knowing the property is going to be, like, on the giant screens across the entire world in the near future? We well, can also nope. tie that into uh, Luke Cage and Iron Fist, too, with the, the actually, Netflix yeah, series, too. Yeah. Yeah, they could, and I could, but I don't. I don't even think about that stuff. I, I, it's like I just want to write the best comics I can write, and if if I ever started getting those sort of memos from any publisher, I think that would be the time when I'd be like, okay, I think I'm done here. Um, you know, it's it's that would be the time for me to move on and focus more on my creator own stuff because, you know, it's it's the comics. It's it's if, you know, if somebody wants to hire me at some point to work on a film or television series, they can hire me to work on the film or television series. But, you know, in the here and now, the immediacy of now, I'm just concerned about what the readers are going to get every month and, and writing the best comics that I can write and, and writing comics that um, pay respect to the medium itself because I have tremendous amount of respect for for the medium of comics, which, you know, goes far beyond just the superhero genre um, and, and goes beyond just the, the the model of the American monthly floppy. It, it, it is, is very transcendent and, and covers a very wide expanse. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I figure it's always a fascinating question we ask anyone who get who gets tied into like their work on on the comic, and there's also some character in another form. We always find it fascinating of you know whether or not that weighs on their mind or if anyone even brings that stuff up. Um, it's just a very yeah, for, yeah, and 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 it's interesting because for me it's like you know, uh, and and it's a question that I get asked a lot, and and. You know, and, I, and I'm always told, well, if it comes up, you're not supposed to talk about it. It's like, well, there's nothing to talk about. I don't know yeah. what's going on with the movie. And, and again, like, you know, and this is where I, you know, I it's a, sort of a flippant response, but it's like, well, I'm not paid enough to care. You know, <laughs> it's like I, I'm I'm paid enough to write a really great comic. Um, now, if you want me to write a really great movie, then you're just going to have to pay me to to do more. But, you know, I'll be in line to see um, when the Cyborg movie comes out, I'll be in line to see it. And, you know, uh, Luke Cage is going to make his debut in Jessica Jones, which debuts 
you know, Friday. like in like a week, less than a week. Uh, so I think it's Friday. So for about 13, 14 hours straight, I'm going to be, you know, completely off, you know, off the grid as I watch Jessica Jones. And then when Luke Cage comes up, same thing. Like I, you know, those are the times I just enjoy being a consumer or, 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 or a, an audience member, as it were. Nice. Um, well, we've definitely we've had you on for the hour. Uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, we always end the show when we have guests we, to give you a uh, some time to plug your stuff, uh, you know, comics that you want people to check out and where people can connect with you online uh, so they can follow you after the show. Cool. Well, uh, follow me. I'm on Twitter, David Walker 1201, uh, 1201. I'm not sure uh, how much longer I'm going to stay on Twitter because with the presidential elections coming up, I get nauseated. So I might take a break for a while. Um, uh, in terms of other work, the Shaft trade paperback just came out last month. That's Shaft, a complicated man from Dynamite Entertainment and I am supremely proud of that. I think it's um, that's the truest, most accurate um, realization of my writing in in the comic format. I, I'm really happy with that. And um, and then next month, I think the novel Shaft's Revenge comes out, which is um, Dynamite had uh, asked me to write the first Shaft novel and. I think it's 40 years since the last one to come out. And so that, I think, is coming out. I think it's next month, but I could be wrong. So those are, those are two really recent projects um, and, you know, both the same character but very different approaches because one's a comic and one's a novel without any pictures and, uh, and, 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 and a very interesting insight into the character and then, of course, Cyborg. I think issue five comes out. If not this week, it must be next week. December yeah, 2nd. Yeah, it's got to be next week because I haven't got my comps yet. So um, so that'll be out. <laughs> Power Man and Iron Fist, I think February, I think is when the first issue of that comes out. Um, so that's yep. a ways off. And um, and that's it. You know, I've got, I have other things out there, but it's like I... I I don't want to sound greedy, and I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. So, uh, you know, if you like one thing, you know, check out some of the other stuff. Uh, and 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 there's always going to be more stuff. You know, there's um, there's new projects that I'm developing, and and just really trying to just trying to bring a little bit more to this industry um, than was there when I was a kid. That's the most important thing. I, I, I'd like to see a little bit better representation and a little bit more inclusion than I saw when I was a kid, or at least different versions of it. And because, uh, yeah, when I was a kid, it, it wasn't always the best. Yeah, that, that's a whole. That's probably topics for many shows. <laughs> yeah, how comics let us down as kids. Uh, well, but thanks. For- there's and one more thing. Let me just I, I just, mm-hmm. let me just crawl back up on my soapbox just for a moment <laughs> for all your Please. listeners and for you. You know and you know for everybody. You know the thing is is like you know uh, I've been a harsh critic of many things over the years, and I think that it's important to level criticism and to look at things analytically and critically. 
but I also think that if there's something out there that you're not seeing that you want um, in terms of representation, in terms of inclusion, it's, it's not only is it important to speak up about it, it's important to support the work that's out there, but I think even more important, you need to explore, people need to explore ways to start creating that work themselves. It's, it's, um, that's the big thing. Don't wait for a publisher or a creator to do something that speaks for you. Develop the skills yourself. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it can take forever. And, and when I say this to people, a lot of people think I'm being dismissive and, you know, like saying, oh, go out there and do it yourself. And it's like, no, because there's nothing, what I'm saying is empower yourself. There's nothing more empowering than doing it yourself, finding an audience, finding people to connect with, and 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 realizing that you're that you're not alone. That there's other people that think that way, feel that way, and and have those desires. And you know, I think a lot of people who are um, politically minded or socially justice minded spend a lot of time more as as critical thinkers, critical analysis. And, and sort of talking about what needs to be done or what we'd like to see. And, and there's not enough of us being creative. And, and, and the reality is, is that there's, there's plenty of room for us to be creative. Even if that room isn't necessarily at the big companies, there's plenty of opportunities in the independent world. There's plenty of opportunities in the, in the DIY world. And what we need to do is we need to tell our stories. We need to create our stories rather than waiting for somebody else to do them. Uh, even even I can't tell everybody's story. Um, there's there's other people out there that are far better suited to tell certain specific stories that will speak much more loudly and clearly to you know specific people. And that's it. So I I, I really want to encourage people to start you know, sort of taking control of their own narrative or the narrative that they want and putting it out there. No, it's a great message, and it's uh, always a mm-hmm. great reminder. I think indie comics, you're, you're seeing that a lot with people telling amazing stories that you wouldn't have seen two or three, four years ago. Um, yeah. Know, there's, there's tons out there, and... and, and we're in a really a golden age where people can choose uh, and find something that speaks to them or, you know, that reflects them. Um, and if they don't, tons of ways to, uh, to get involved and, and start creating yourself or let your voice be heard to know that that's what you want. I think that's kind of a key thing. Um, but yeah, that's, it's awesome. Um, I'm, I think we would love to have you back in the future and so open invite to come on whenever you'd like. Um, I know I, I had a great time and, not to speak for Alana, but I'm sure she enjoyed it too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We would love to have you guys back on in time to talk about um, uh, Iron Fist and and Luke Cage when 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 we have a little bit of that under our belt. And, and next year. Cool. Yeah, most definitely. That would be great. Just, Yay! You know how to get in That's touch great. with me. So absolutely. So, thanks a lot. Uh, right. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'll let yep, you go. Yep. Take care. I'm going to get back to writing now. <laughs> Very Sounds important. Good. All right. Have a good right. night. Thanks. Yep, you too. Yeah, bye. Um, yeah, so that was fun. Um and we tweeted up yeah. some cool for those who don't know the uh the references that um David was talking about with 
Sonny's Blues and Invisible Man. We tweeted all that stuff for you to check it out because it's stuff I don't even necessarily know. So, as usual, I learn a ton uh, off of our <laughs> from our guests. Uh, and speaking okay. of guests, we've got another kick-ass one next week. Uh, do you want to do the the announcement oh, of who sure. folks can expect? Joining us next week is Marjorie Liu, whose new comic, Monstrous, I think has it in the cards to be the next big saga-esque breakaway hit in terms of being a comic that you will be able to get your friends who don't read comics to read and that everybody in culture will be talking about and that will change the industry forever, et cetera, et cetera. It's really fascinating, dark fantasy, female perspective, set in Asia, amazing. And you should all just go get it right now. And then you'll be prepared to join us as we talk with Marjorie Liu about her comic on Monday. You may know her name because she is the writer of the best Black Widow series ever a number of years ago. And um, she wrote X-23. She wrote Astonishing mm-hmm. X-Men, including The Big Gay Wedding. And um, she's just a fantastic writer, and we're really excited to have her on the show next week. Yes, and Monstrous has been a monstrous hit. Uh, having sold mm-hmm. out. Yeah, I had to. Sorry. It sold out. It yeah. sold out, but it might be at store, uh, your local stores, still on shelves at distributor level. There's going to be a second printing out uh, relatively soon. I don't think it's time for the show. And, of course, you can always get it digitally, um, the power of technology. So it never really sells out, just printed. Um, so, yeah, so that will be next Monday. And then Sunday, do you want to announce the other awesomeness that is happening? <laughs> God, there's so much awesomeness. Sunday is the beginning of our new podcast series which has been named by Brett, uh, which has been named by Brett so perfectly it's called Jonesing for Jessica I bet you can guess what this is about it's finally a one podcast per episode podcast about Jessica Jones the new Jessica Jones show so we'll be doing I know you know this on this podcast we've done a lot of individual episodes about individual shows but we've never done like a episode by episode uh, breakdown of a comic book show before. I guess Brett Brett does that with Fear of the Walking Dead, actually. So he did yeah, that. Yeah, we did that one. That. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, um, so, so this will be new for us, and we are really excited for the show. We have some great guests coming up um, who will be joining us. We're starting with repeat guest uh, Steve Adderwell. I know Sarah Jaffe will be joining us again, Sarah Rasher, and Alyssa Rosenberg from the Washington Post. Ba-ba-ba. Um, there's yeah. more awesome guests who are being finalized as well, so... It's gonna be fun. We're gonna try. I would like to try to do one guest per show. Um, so I think there's what 13 episodes. We'll be doing 13 episodes of ours. Uh, I think it's gonna be it's mm-hmm. gonna be a good time. Um, so far, the buzz has been pretty good. And I don't know about you, but the the trailers and everything leading up to it has been pretty freaking awesome. Um, and I know Friday I will pretty much be watching the as much of the series as possible and reviewing as many of the episodes as possible. So. Uh, folks will get to know what I think on Friday, but we'll have a great discussion starting on Sunday. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be cool. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I think that we were going with 7 o'clock on Sunday. Uh, both episodes will be up uh, tomorrow on Blog Talk Radio, so you can go and mark them down and subscribe and get reminded. So, uh, yeah, got tons of stuff coming up. It's going to be lots of fun. Um, but as always, thank you for listening. You can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy. Uh, for those who want to re-listen to this episode or missed any parts, uh, you can catch us 
it should be up fairly immediately on iTunes. Uh, it is also on Stitcher, and then uh, tomorrow I will be good about it, and it will be up on SoundCloud for you to uh, take it on the go and, and listen to it whenever you'd like on demand. Uh, but as always, thanks for listening. We wouldn't do this uh, if you guys didn't enjoy it. So thanks so much. Um, and until this Sunday, I was going to say next week, but this Sunday, <laughs> um, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky. Thanks. <laughs>